Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. So in the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week we give you the stories of climate tech founders and investors and their unique insights into this fast-moving ecosystem. Today, we are speaking with Phil Moore, partner at Main Sequence Venture based in Australia. Over his long career, Phil has found that his superpower is helping founders fill out their canvas of ideas. He now helps founders grow their teams by investing in global companies that have science at their core. Deep tech investors and food tech experts, Phil gives us a deep dive into why we need to rethink the whole food tech ecosystem. In the second part of the show, Phil explains the details of slam dunk financing and how you should use it to pitch investors. He also gives a few tips on achieving a good work-life balance and the books he uses to get there. Phil, welcome to the show. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today, directly from Australia. So that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, this great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed uh, on what you guys are looking at with Main Sequence Venture. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. 
<laughs> so before we start, uh, as everyone knows, can you give us like a 30 second introduction about uh, Main Sequence Ventures? The Main Sequence Ventures is a deep tech venture capital firm based in Australia, but investing in global companies that have got science at their core. That's less than that? 30 seconds. That was less than 30 seconds. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal uh, story and background? What are you passionate about? What do you do besides working and supporting uh, and investing in founders? I mean, wh what makes you feel inspired uh, or like your best self, as I like to ask? Who is Phil? Well, you know, I do have things that I do outside of my work, but I also do love my work. I love it very much and I do it a lot and it's very important to me. And let me sort of walk through how I got here and then that'll help you understand why. I mean, I, I think of myself as a maker. I actually went to art college. Uh, I then studied drama. I became a theater director and that was my first career. It was actually making, making plays and bringing people together not paying them any money, having to hold them together into this tight unit of people that wanted to make something great just for the for the sake of making that great thing. And and that's really that really defined what I am and what I do. I like to make things with what I have around me. Um, during that time, obviously, um, in theatre, you don't get paid that much money. So uh, so I needed to have a side hustle. And my side hustle became very quickly making websites for people. So this is how my sort of technical skill grew pretty quickly. And um, I became a website developer. I um, started getting quite busy doing that. And then when the internet started going crazy, I thought, wow, I, you know, Phil, you've got to decide to get on the train or watch the train go off. And that was at the end of the 90s. And I decided I was going to get on the train and at the time, I thought, gosh, I'm going to hate having this real job in technology. But, you know, I'll go and have a sabbatical every year and I'll make some theatre that I want to make. And, and, I, and I realized when I was in, I got into the, to the work um, that what I loved was bringing teams together generally and then working with those teams to make something. This became the sort of common thread for me. And um, that that sort of ended up with me becoming the chief technology officer at a quite a big startup at the time called Kazar, which was one of the post Napster file sharing companies that got me very, very sued by all the record companies and all the movie studios. And that sort of defined the next few years of my life. And then I wanted to join another startup though. I was, uh, I was wanting to do that even more. I'd really tasted the startup possibility and there weren't any at the time this is in 2008 and so I sort of scratched my own itch and I created Australia's Y Combinator basically which was called Pollinizer at the time uh, and that's what I did for the next 10 years and during that I started you know I, I, I learned the art of deliberately making companies which is you know very specifically what I do now and towards the end of it, I started working with scientists um, in the labs of Australia and thought, oh, my God, yeah, this is this is amazing. This is this is worlds colliding of entrepreneurship and, and venture 
with the depth and impact that's possible in science. And that's how I got to where I am in my work. And I, I, I hope you can see that, you know, what's not to love about that? What a, what a great job. <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, for the people who are listening to the to the show, who uh, in a way maybe aspire to uh, become like uh, you know investors, what would be like if you can recall during this whole journey, like one or two pieces of uh, you know experiences uh, that kind of you know helped you in a way to uh, to become the investor that you are today, and uh, you know that gave you an edge to join the the firm as a as a partner. One of the wonderful things about being an investor when you understand it is it's not actually about, you know, having a technical skill so much like like being a doctor or being a lawyer. You know, I think people misunderstand venture when they think of a venture capitalist as a banker who needs to sort of understand legal term sheets and documents and how to value things as though there's a as a sort of mathematical formula to do that but especially in the early stages it's it's a very different job and i i liken it to people to be much more like being a movie producer or a showrunner in uh, in a in tv these days where you're yes you're deploying capital but you're deploying capital into a vessel which is sort of not fully formed yet and you want to help it form and you want to bring in talent and you want to sort of help bring in more more technology and more people and know how to market and know how to tell the story and everything that a company needs. So now coming back to your question, the important thing to do is to have experiences in your life where you can inform that job in an interesting and unique way. And when we hire new investors in main sequence, we we're always looking for something new and it's quite infuriating because people say, but specifically, what do you want me to be good at? And we'll say, well, we want you to be good at something that we're not already good at. What are you good at? <laughs> you know, what's, what's your special superpower? What's your skill? What do you, you know, tell me something interesting. And so it's, you know, have an interesting life. And then specifically, it's sort of start practicing deploying that interesting life with startups. There's so many opportunities to meet startups, go to co-working centers, become a mentor in, a, in an accelerator program, even coaching accelerator programs to, to help um, put, send an email to a venture capital firm and say, I'd like to come and work with you for free for a month and um, see what happens on the inside. And just start doing the synthesis job of throwing your life against that work and just seeing where the sort of sparks start to fly. And, um, you know, anyone can do it because humans are interesting people. Uh, but that's, that's where you've got to find the way to, the way to apply it uniquely. So if I may ask, then what's your superpower? Um, my superpower is to help people to share it with as many people in the world as possible um specifically so that the, the those people will help you right so I, like i am i am in my comfort zone when people have nothing it's a blank canvas you know you don't know what to do you know my superpower is let's let's figure out how to how to 
fill out that canvas so it's the most beautiful thing anybody can see and they want to play a part in what comes next. So you have been, as you mentioned at the beginning of your, uh, your journey uh, at the origin of like, you know, the Aussie uh, tech ecosystem, then you really fostered and accelerated uh, the opportunity for uh, other founders, uh, you know, by creating the, the YC of, uh, of Australia. Um, but that's a traditional tech ecosystem. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, getting closer to, to scientists and trying to like touch that a little bit and understand because I mean, today, even Sequence Venture, you guys are investing in, uh, you know, at least in, in climate tech and, and this like solving this major problem that you are all facing in Australia uh, is always at the forefront of, uh, of those, uh, you know, effect and direct consequences of it. So what has been during this, uh, this whole journey, this haha moment that you could uh, define or recall as such that in a way pushed you to, to take the, the, the leap and move into that category? When I was in the final years of Polonizer, one of our one of our final jobs was to design and run a program here in Australia that was called the On Accelerator Program. And this was run by the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, which is Australia's national science agency. And it was run across all the universities in Australia. So if you were if you were a scientist or researcher, and you had an idea for something and some, some IP that could become a company, you went through that accelerator program and it was the first of its kind in Australia. And I'd just spent 10 years doing Polonizer, the classic sort of generation one internet startups, so marketplaces, early SaaS companies, um, media, advertising, that kind of thing. And you know, I was getting a little bit bored because you know, we were making hundreds and hundreds of companies and, you know, the same ideas were coming around and we were pretty good at it. And, you know, you get bored of something when you're, you're kind of so good at it, you're just kind of doing the same thing time and time again. And, and then I walked into the first of these workshops and there were a hundred scientists in the room um, across multiple teams. And the first thing that struck me was, I didn't understand a word anyone was saying, <laughs> right? They were all so terrible at describing what it was they were making and certainly why it was valuable. They were talking in their own little bubbles, like literally the Tower of Babel, like no one could understand each other outside their own discipline. Um, and then certainly they were not um able to describe what the potential business is why someone might pay you money for this why it's valuable and we were, we were just kind of miles away from anything we might call a startup today and i then we, we we took the time going through uh the work of these teams and i was just just overwhelmed with how powerful it was it's that feeling of wow, you know, can humans really do this? Like, this is extraordinary. Um, and um, and that, that's when I kind of realized that when you, when you, to bring together what I do, which is to take some raw material and make it into a company that people get excited by and to really just operationalize that with a scientist that knows how to sequester carbon or invent a whole new kind of food or 
build a quantum computer or build a radar system that you know doesn't actually involve actually sending beams out into space or whatever it's going to be what wow, this is this you know this there's that now there's the rest of my life sort of laid out on the road in front of me and i think especially around the climate challenge um i mean this ultimately i'm a, i'm an optimist i'm a sort of tech optimist i think i think we can solve anything we just have to find a way and certainly when you look at climate um there are solutions to it all we just have to do it um and i think you know i feel very fortunate to be where i am right now where you know i i can sort of i can play a role in bringing together that science with the impact that can come with venture to actually solve some of these some of these problems that are before us so let's take a, a zoom out and a, a step back at the, the food tech, uh, ag tech ecosystem uh, and its potential to contribute to uh, the fight against climate change today. I mean, maybe you can start by giving us some uh, data points regarding the impact of uh, food production and consumption in the, on the climate crisis. And after we can uh, maybe go a little bit deeper uh, into the landscape today, what are the, the fundamentals that drive the food tech market today? Uh, I know that you are a specialist on that uh, on that topic, so would love to uh, to hear a bit more from you. Let's start maybe with uh, like mm. the, the larger framework and the, the data point here. Yeah. So the my journey in I I haven't always been a food person. So coming into food, uh, I was struck in the accelerator program that the food companies were actually the hardest to make. So if you think about making a company that's that is making a new kind of food. Um, there are so many dimensions to it. So I'll give you an example. There was a terrific team in the accelerator program that had a whole new way of delivering bioavailable calcium to humans. Right? And they've made this, they had this new way of making this calcium that didn't, so it didn't need to come from dairy. Um, but they didn't know uh, what form factor it would be in. Would it be a, you know, a, would it be a, a sweet? Would it be uh, a drink? Would it be a supplement? Um, why would people buy it? Uh, what would the packaging look like? What's the supply chain? It's all just incredibly complicated. It's got so many dimensions to it. Does it taste nice? Um, and um, that's when I started thinking, gosh, these are, these are really the ultimate challenge. We've got to be able to get these things right. When I joined CSIRO, CSIRO was founded to solve the food problem. It's a hundred year old science organization. And the first science discipline it ran was was food and agriculture because australia is you know it's an enormous landmass but it's not you know verdant fields uh just ready for planting it's uh it's a very rough country and so we had to we had to use science from a hundred years ago and that's been running through the veins of csiro since then but that's when i understood that food is not what we all think it is when we you know, when we go shopping, we assume food is just going to be available. Food from anywhere around the world will be on the shelves for us to buy. Uh, that food is natural and is actually good for the climate. Surely the, the terrible stuff is this stuff in bottles and cans and things. But, you know, not yeah, beautiful steak, you know, that Daisy the cow grew on the on the in the on the pasture or that beautiful glass of milk. You know, they are they're, of course, completely natural and I should I should consume a lot of those and but what I realized is um, 
there's a few things going on. That, that first of all, it's getting harder and harder to make food with each hectare of land that we have. Climate change is moving the ag agricultural landmass, you know, as it gets hotter in certain regions, and we're make we're able to make less and less corn and wheat and whatever it is we need to make. So that's, that's problem number one. Climate change is making it harder to make food. So we need to use science to make, you know, to 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 to, uh, to um, adjust to what climate change is, is doing. Um, but then it's actually looking at the 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 environmental impact of some of those things that we're that we're working on. So the um, I'll, I'll just stay on the on the land for for the moment that the you know we're we're throwing so many chemicals, herbicides, pesticides um, at the at the at the land that we're killing the soil, and the soil is where all the nutrients are, and the soil is where all the carbon is sequestered. Um, and um, over time, everything that we're eating is becoming less and less and less healthy. I mean, it's frightening how many how the food is losing its nutrients. Oranges, for example, are often grown in sand these days, and we inject vitamin C into the orange rather than the orange growing the vitamin C. I mean, this is the crazy world that we're living in. Um, and so all of these things, you know, we need technology so that the soil starts pulling the carbon back in and putting it back in the soil. Ma massive carbon sick, if we get that right. Um, and I'll give you an example there. We have a company called Loam Bio who make microbes that uh, um, exist with the, the roots of a plant. They, they, they live with the roots of a plant. Um, and those microbes drag carbon out of the atmosphere through the plant, through the roots, into the soil to sequester it for hundreds of years. Um, it if you if we farm US soy using that product, we will cancel out the emissions that US cars put into the atmosphere. That's that's the scale of what one piece of technology could do. Um, in livestock, of course, you know, this is a this is a huge problem that I I, I find few people understand that um, dairy and meat production, especially beef are um, frightening in terms of um, their uh, unsustainability. Um, so, for example, a, uh, the average cow will kind of emit, you know, 40 kilos of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere for every kilo of meat that you make. And if you compare that to, you know, other things, or plant-based meat, for example, it'd be like one kilo for one kilo something like that. So it's, a, it's an incredible um, emitter. Um, but again, more importantly, um, we're just literally running out of planet. So there, there is no more land to put more cows on. Um, uh, New Zealand is heavily polluted because it's a dairy company. This is, it's, it's, New Zealand is sort of, you know, is a dairy company. Um, and the cows just pollute all the rivers, and there's no more land to put the cows on, and um, and it's a real problem. So we 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 can't just make more. And here's the problem: 
and we need to make twice as much uh, between now and 2050. So how do we make twice as much milk? How do we make twice as much beef? How do we make twice as much wheat when climate change is reducing the land mass, when we've already run out of land, we've already run out of water, we've already run out of these things? And, you know, my, our thesis in the fund is we call it feeding 10 billion people because we need to make twice as much food for, you know, for 10 billion people and we're going to use half the planet um, to do so. So that's, that they're the kind of things we're investing in companies that solve for that, for that problem. So you mentioned already, like I would say, the, the fundamentals that drive this uh, this market and this innovation uh, in a way. I mean, we, we hear a lot about like alternative proteins, robot farming, you know, planet-friendly pesticides uh, and, the, and their potential. Maybe can you give us a little bit like your uh, view where which categories into the, the, the food tech and ag tech um, today needs the most innovation and still like a, a blank uh, state uh, where this you see a lot of like potential and where entrepreneurs listening to the show, maybe if they're working on an idea, should no, go and uh, knock on your door. Yeah, well, gosh, I think it's just an enormous canvas of opportunity. So. So first of all, um, um, how do we farm? Let's let's sort of answer that question. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier, we today we just sort of blast everything with pesticides and chemicals, and we till the soil like crazy, and that's what's worked for generations. Um, but we need to we need to do it differently now, and that goes back to. Yeah, so what what is it that we grow and what are the seeds that we plant? You know, so there's all the innovation around that. You know, we can we can we can make new seeds which are more tolerant to climate change. We can make new seeds which grow things in a more abundant way so we get more yield out of each hectare. We can make seeds which do something unique that the new kinds of food need us need those seeds to produce. So for example, uh, much of the plant-based meat is made from soybeans, but soybean has a bit of a bit of a smell, right? It has a beanie smell. It's a soybean, but you can gr grow a special kind of soy, which one of our companies is doing, that has no flavour, and then you've got this really strong base to actually then build back up the meat flavours to create your plant-based meat. So there's right down there at that that you know that upstream stage on the farm. You've got all that innovation around what is planted and then what is applied to it, like the loam, you know, microbes so that you're sequestering the soil and you can get your carbon credits and all that kind of stuff. And then you're sort of moving into the, the kind of the automation of that, which we've hardly seen any of that now. And we're, we're looking at that again. We've got, we've got now a data layer over agriculture which has taken the last sort of certainly five years maybe ten years to 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 grow that's been hard to do anything with until recently because it's been patchy you know there's been company a that does you know potatoes in the ukraine and company b that does you know sorghum in australia and they're kind of it, there's just all these patches, whereas now we've got this blanket of data and analysis across the world. Now there's this really interesting moment where all the automation can rise and actually plug into that. So all these, you know, all these robots that can actually operate the farms can do work that 
that that is feeding off that data and and interacting in real time with the actual state on the ground. And this this is really interesting around things like, um, uh, you probably know that when you set, you sell something like an avocado to a supermarket, it has to be exactly the same, like a whole tray of exactly the same avocados. But what can happen is if you grow avocados in field A and field B is got a slightly different microclimate, for example, it's all different. Whereas these new robot systems with the data layer can just adjust in real time and know what to do with all their crop modeling to actually just deliver exactly the right avocados in the most sustainable way. Um, and we're gonna see that sort of massively moving things into much more sustainable methods of farming. Um, and one of the things that's dragging that out of the labs and onto the farm is COVID, of course, where the whole workforce in agriculture has been slashed and, you know, farmers are struggling to find the workers they need. And it's a really good time to sell them a robot and uh, move them to a new system. And then, you know, next we kind of move up into what is the food itself and that's an area where we're extremely busy you know we we believe you know we've just got to make food in a in an entirely different way as well as the ways that we're making it today um but for example we have a we have a dairy company um called eden brew that's making milk that's exactly like um exactly like a cow would make but it's 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 completely sustainable um, because it's brewed like beer you know it's made in a factory it's not made in a cow you don't need to make a cow and keep it alive for years to get the milk that you want to have and the cow isn't going to be burping you know methane emissions and all that so there's I mean I hope what I'm communicating here is this is each step if you if you start in the soil putting a seed in and you sort of make your way through the whole system all the way up to a human putting something into their mouth. There are sustainability choices. There are problems all along the way. There are nutrition problems. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's problems at every single step and each of them needs a company. You know, there's, it's, it's no surprise that there are companies, there are venture capital firms that only do food because they they'll be busy only doing food. <laughs> so, you mentioned, uh, and that's very interesting. I mean, on one side, uh, modifying seeds to, you know, give them like new properties. Uh, you mentioned about like, you know, brewing milk. Uh, we speak, we spoke about like, you know, alternative proteins, but all of that. I mean, there's always like this, some concern about the, the Frankensteinization uh, of yeah. our food system and the food that, uh, that we eat. I mean, can you tell us maybe what's the red line to not to not cross in a way? How, how is the, the, the consumer that um, are, you know, the future or already the buyers of uh, those uh, those products coming out of those uh, those companies that you guys are supporting? I mean, how, how is the, 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 the market reacting to that and how do you communicate that uh, around uh, and how do you maybe keep like also like some safeguard here uh, to make sure mm. that we don't do in a way worst, uh, even by being excited of new, um, you know, solution. And you know, speaking a lot of in, in the European side uh, about GMO, like uh, 15 years ago. Uh, so now today technology is giving even more opportunities to, uh, 
to really like customize uh, what we what we want to uh, to produce. But what's your opinion on that? And how is the the you know the market uh, and the consumer early adopters reacting to that? Well, you know, we've been doing it for thousands of years, and people. I, I think this. I think the co we need to have a different conversation with with the people of Earth, right? <laughs> Because um, uh, we assume that all food is naturally grown, and that we can continue doing that, and we should sort of we should always return to those roots, if you like, of uh, of how food is produced. But if you if you take um, corn, for example. Um, that is a human edited, yeah, even it, probably even better to say a human created food. It is a engineered product. Yeah, the natural corn looks more like grass. You know, it's a tiny little stalk with you know grass seeds on top, and it's it's actually highly nutritious. It's got a very strong flavor. It's very hard to eat. You'd imagine you know a cow eating it or something like that. Um, but over hundreds and even thousands of years, we have edited that selectively. You know, we have bred it selectively to make this big sort of exploding cylinder of sugar, which is corn today, right? Um, but that's human created. You know, that corn is not uh, natural. Um, Now, sort of compare that to something that sort of sounds really strange. There's, there's, a, there's a company in the UK, for example, that has modified uh, the genes of a tomato so that the little scar that you have on top of the tomato disappears, right? And so you end up with this tomato that sort of is a strange sort of you know, perfect sphere almost. Well, it's not a sphere, it's all tomato shape, but it doesn't have that scar on top. And this is really important because um, most uh, tomatoes are wasted because that little scar goes moldy first and then the mold spreads across the tomato. If you don't have it, they last much longer. Now, this seems to be a really good thing. It's actually no different to how the corn was modified But the corn was just done with breeding over a long time. This is done by sort of mod modifying the gene of the of the of the tomato. Um, but it's a tomato. It's not a tomato, uh, you know, half tomato, half giraffe, or you know, it's not it's not a tomato that's got some new chemical in it that might hurt you. It's just a tomato, and it doesn't have a scar on top. Um, you know, similarly, we can make crops that just don't need as much water. We make cows that don't need as much rain, right? This is all. This all happens, but it's still a cow, and it, no, no one's hurt the cow, and nothing bad's happened to the cow. It just means actually the cow won't suffer when it doesn't rain as much in Australia. And so these kind of things happen. I think one of the biggest mistakes we made as as a as innovators uh, is. We used the language we used as scientists with consumers. We used genetically modified organism as a way of describing, you know, the work we do. And we described that to customers. And that's what started going on labels. If you, if you do a consumer uh, study on GMO, um, most consumers will tell you they think it's bad. Um, 
if you say why is it bad they'll most consumers will say they don't know but most of their friends tell them it is right and so and of course if you're if you're thinking about um, eating food like who wants to eat something that's got a genetically modified organism anything anywhere near it like you it's just the wrong word and of course that's where this whole horrible you know imagination thing starts happening with people but we need to talk about it because this is how we're going to actually feed ourselves this is a serious problem right there is i personally believe there is no version of the future where um we're going we're going back to natural farming methods to feed the 10 billion people that are going to be on the earth we need to do it another way and if you take the milk example i gave you i mean let's let's sort of look at what's happening there you're, you're effectively um making the, so how's milk made today well first of all we 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 make this factory called a cow and the and then what we do is we kind of we we hack the cows um, milk production system, which is meant for its baby's nutrition, so that it makes more of that milk. And we keep it pregnant all year long, and we feed it lots of hormones, and we um, give it lots of antibiotics because we're milking them so much they're going to get infected somehow. And so, so I guess the first comment is that that's not particularly natural, right? That's that's pretty extreme. But let you know, let you know. Um, but that's how that is. Think of it like a machine that makes milk. That's what it ultimately is. Um, the other way is um, you brew it like beer. You make yeast. You you have a special kind of yeast. This is you know, and this is what the scientists are developing. And that special yeast doesn't produce alcohol when you feed it sugar or some other carbon source. It produces the different dairy proteins that milk needs <coughs> excuse me and so um the, all these dairy proteins are exactly the same as the dairy proteins that the cow machine would produce but they're actually produced just like making beer in big stainless steel tanks and the yeast is the yeast is producing them and then you recombine them back into into milk again and you know using this method you can make vast amounts of uh of milk like enormous amounts like i've i've calculated that um you know you could you could you could do many multiples of the current australian uh dairy production just out of one one big brewery so it's a big big business could be as could be as big as the coal mining in australia right making milk um but it coming back to your question it's not franken milk it is milk. It's exactly the same stuff. Uh, it's just been produced by this sort of special yeast. And the yeast has been genetically modified, but the yeast isn't in the food. Right? So, so the yeast goes nowhere near the food. Uh, out of curiosity, because you hear my French accent and I'm from Belgium, country of, uh, of cheese. I mean, is that milk uh, suitable for, you know, dairy products like cheese and, and others? Yeah. Or we still need to stick is, to, uh, yeah. to the old fashioned way? Fantastic. No, no. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, I mean, that's where the innovation comes in. What's happened in the these new ways of making milk is people have started with 
um, the, the simpler dairy products. So ice cream, for example, has one dairy protein in it. And there are some of these new dairy companies who are making ice cream and they've made this one protein. But if you're if you want to make a beautiful, soft French stinky cheese, you know, you you need to have, you know, all of the you need to have all the, as many of the proteins as you as you can make and have those in there. Um, and um, and then you know then you can make a cheese. So yeah, our, you know I've, I've, we've set our company a challenge to make a beautiful parmesan at the moment. That's their that's their that's their mission. That's exciting. Couple of more yeah. questions, Phil, uh, to uh, to close this uh, this section. Um, I like to zoom in a little bit on the Aussie uh, landscape in itself. Like, if you can tell us a bit more, like, wh- what are the Aussie advantages and weaknesses in regard of like uh, decarbonization? Uh, how do you compare Australia versus uh, you know uh, US or enlarge the rest of the world? Do you see any major roadblocks? Uh, what are the, the, the constraints uh, that you have identified? Um, I mean, is it new of like need of new policies or new politicians uh, in place? Uh, maybe new lobbyists uh, or maybe it's like of funding, uh, maybe lack of like R&D and, and, and startups. Um, I mean, what needs to happen to accelerate this uh, decarbonization of uh, the Australia in, uh, in general? Um, I, 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 I think... Um... Australia is doing some things really well, and it's been doing some things really badly. Um, uh, in terms of what we're doing really well, I would say um, in the, let's say, the ESG-driven change of industry, there's a good conversation happening there. And um, there's a lot of targets, independent of government targets, where the companies, even even the big mining companies and the mineral companies, and the, you know, the big retailers and the supermarkets, they're all going for ambitious um, sustainability targets, um, which I think is really exciting. Um, we've, we have had in the past a, um, a government which has been very resistant, even climate denying, I would say, um, in the past. Uh, and, um, and I think that's been driven by the fact that our our economy is is a commodity economy. You know, we 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 make a lot of money in Australia from pulling things out of the ground and selling them. You know, so that could be coal, it could be um, it could be uranium, it could be uh, could be uh, wheat, <laughs> but it's still we're a commodity company that a country that um, needs to keep. Uh, uh, the, the the mining companies and the primary produce makers happy at least that's been the that's been the the sort of the, the general um, conversation. Um, we had a very significant change here at the last general election that many people actually call the climate election, where kind of enough was enough, and. Um, we had a lot of independents rising, and um, and definitely the public voted for a climate positive future. And there's there's quite a lot of things happening in government now, which uh, we're all feeling very optimistic about. 
the interesting thing about Australia is um, it doesn't have the complexity of Europe with all the different countries. It doesn't have even the complexity of the U.S. with all the different states, which can be as, you know, as complex as, as the EU sometimes. Um, uh, we do have different states, but we are, we are able to do things um, um, at scale when we set our minds to doing it. And you can look, if you look at what happened during COVID, um, I think I think many people criticised Australia as kind of a prison because everyone thought we were all kind of locked down and uh, things weren't happening. But actually, you know, it, yeah, that for the most part, everything was okay here in Australia as long as you weren't, you know, working in a restaurant or something or in tourism or something. Um, and what what you saw from outside was a whole country actually doing something right and and that's that's my optimistic view about climate now what we're starting to see is is a is a lean-in um and a, you know a, an active ear listening to what what it is that we need to do um and um and i think we're going to see some movement my concern is back to the storytelling and um and i don't mean telling fairy tales i mean clear uh, purposeful communication about what we're trying to do um, and um, and why things are a certain way. So, for example, if if we're trying to reduce emissions, what is the truth about you know how one thing is emitting a certain amount and another thing is emitting a different amount? Who's right? Like who decides? And what happens when one person you know has some hardship because of that? ruling versus the other person and so there's a kind of honesty that we need a, 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 a courageousness um, and a conviction um, but i think if any country can do it well it's australia is my belief because it's there's just fewer people fewer states you know we should be able to go for it and uh, get it right <laughs> Fantastic. So let's go to the, the specifics of uh, Main Sequence Venture. Like, can you tell us a bit more about like the, the, the story, the genesis of it? Uh, what was the initial gap uh, that uh, led to the, the, the thesis? Um, and uh, how, I mean, if you can tell us a bit more about this really like uh, initial, uh, you know, story and, uh, and vision uh, behind the fund. Yeah. So back um in the years before the fund was founded, so sort of 2015, um, 16, there was this, there was an observation that um, whilst Australia has some of the best research in the world, uh, if you measure it by uh, citations and actual impact and um, an invention, we're sort of in, you know, the top percent of the world. Um, if you measure us by commercialization it's a poor at least it was appallingly bad i hope it's a much better number now but on in the oecd rankings of sort of commercial impact we were 70 something we were kind of uh like a southeast asian you know developing market it was awful um and so one of the and a whole bunch of interventions happened at that time, which are very, very positive, which were federal government interventions. So things like the on accelerator that I described earlier to make universities better at commercializing what they're doing. 
Um, there was there's a very successful program called the R&D tax concession, which allows um, companies to get back 50% credit on everything they spend on R&D. It's been an amazing you know, funding fuel for innovation here. Um, and then another one was, what if there was a venture capital fund that knew what to do with hard technology, with deep technology, with science, and um, and started making investments? You know, uh, would we would we get more companies that way, and would we capture the value and make these globally significant companies? So the government put the first hundred million Australian dollars into our fund, and then we all came in and we raised another hundred and fifty million on top of that from the private sector, and we created this fund and set ourselves the task of understanding what our job was to what what do you do differently if you're if you're working uh, with science as your raw material um, and that was the first main sequence and it's 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 been uh, the thesis was right uh, you know I, I will say because um, we've we've invested in some incredible companies the pipeline just gets fatter and bigger every month. The quality of the companies in that pipeline increases. Uh, people know what to do, you know, the discipline in research for making a company, not just inventing something, is now a lot more intuitive uh, and spreading across the system. And then because, you know, because we're investing in, in deep tech, it means all the investors that were on the precipice of investing in deep tech, but kind of were just a bit worried they didn't quite understand it. You know, we can co-invest in them with them, and you know, we can we can help with our scientific community, which are part of main sequence, to actually help understand an opportunity. So it's so it's causing more venture capital firms to invest in deep tech. So the whole market is kind of exploding here, and it's become a very big uh, category of investment here in Australia. Um, so the fund, the fund is definitely working in that regard. Um, in terms of the things which we do um, uh, special, uh, the simplest way to put it is um, it's practically impossible for any mortal to create uh, a deep tech company. So to make a quantum computing company or a satellite company or a new kind of food or um, uh, I mean, I, I, I often gave impossible foods as an example when we first founded the fund. I mean, how if you're a scientist and you're th saying, I, I, I think I could make meat without animals, what does it take? And at the time we were looking at impossible foods and it had had a billion dollars invested into it, a billion dollars. <laughs> You know, you you can't get that from grants, right? You you need the private sector, you need venture capital, you need this entrepreneurship around it. Um, and so what what we learned is, yeah, you, know, you can't just go to um, a, you can't just get a desk at WeWork and sit there with your laptop and start working and build a company like you perhaps could if you were a publishing platform or something like that. You need help. You need IP, you need labs, you need production facilities, you need prototyping, you need talent, which is really hard to find, and where is it? And so um, we've found that the earlier we go, the better. 
and um, and without interfering to the extent that it's useful, we really help. So let's go back to that movie producer sort of metaphor. It's like making it's like making a movie, and the IP is you've got a script. Yeah, you've got the first draft of the script, and it looks pretty good. You can sort of imagine the movie, but there's everything to build. Um, and so, you know, we've had to become a sort of full-service venture capital firm. Starts very early. You know, we've got uh, we've got ways to help with talent. We've got ways to help with marketing. We've got ways to help with branding and design. We've got um, recruitment programs. We've got ways of nurturing talent between universities and our fund. We have. Um, we have researchers coming into our fund to be investors for a little while so they can feel what it's like. You know, it's all these things that just sort of, you know, smash down the, the walls, break down the silos, get people talking and building things together from a very early stage. So going back into the, the investments that you guys uh, do, I mean, we cover a little bit like the, um, you know, food tech on one side, uh, you mentioned like the deep tech. So which sector, maybe you can mention one or, one or two, uh, are the most promising for you today in terms of uh, what I call ICR or impact cash uh, return? I mean, meaning building impactful companies while creating highly profitable business. Do you see any underdogs yeah. or subsectors areas that you're super excited about? Yeah, I, yes, I think so. Um, what what we find in the yeah, it's it's like a um, um, it's you you need to sort of have a truffle nose, right? And you're sort of sniffing out for opportunities. So what happens is, as you get to the edge of one opportunity, you sort of smell the next thing and you kind of go to it. So, as an example, we when we um, when we uh, invested in founded really v2 food which is now asia's biggest sort of plant-based meat company um we we got to the point of we got to kind of the edge of the innovation around the protein if you like where we we thought how do we make this better we realized fat was missing like fat was a really important part of the whole experience of meat And so we needed to figure out how to make fat without animals and you know that led us to create a company called nourish which is making animal animal fat without without animals um similarly you know as we make all the food in this way we've realized that you can make materials in the same way you can make immensely sustainable materials from um from things that normally make food um so for example we've just recently invested in a company called ulu that makes plastic from seaweed it makes a bioplastic that actually sequesters um, eight, sorry, let me get the numbers right. It, it'll actually put five kilos of carbon into the sea for every kilo of plastic you make, which is just an extraordinary, you know, inversion to what actually happens with fossil fuels. But we've kind of got to that because it's, you know, it's, it's fermented in the same way the milk is fermented that I was describing earlier it's it's made in the same way as food and it's made from a feedstock which is a food and so you start to see all these possibilities and then you go wow well how do we make more of this how do we how do we make that at scale what are the companies that are going to help us make this bigger and who's going to be working with this new kind of plastic and and all that so you sort of end up moving out to all these areas um in terms of the impact 
you know, versus the money. I'm absolutely of the view, as I'm sure many people are now, that that now there is no separation. Perhaps there was a day where people chose to. They said it's okay. Impact is more important than the money on this thing. I, I'm fine for it to be to go to impact. Um, uh, but now I think the most valuable companies in the world over the next 10 to 20 years are going to be companies that solve problems for a planet in trouble, and they are going to be hugely impactful. That's where the money's going to be. That's not going to be in digital products. It's going to be in companies that 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 play a part in climate change and um, decarbonization and new food systems and food security, disease. Um, you know, um, uh, tackling you know healthcare pandemics. You know, there's there's just all the, these are these are just massive problems that that people you know have to pay for and um uh and you know we're we're excited to be working in that area what one area that we're looking at at the moment i don't know if you've got any ideas but we're very excited about water as a general thematic this is so to give you an example of something we're just looking at fresh it's it seems that there's an enormous problem around water so is the water in the right place? Where's the water moving around the world? Um, how do we work around drought? Um, how do we recycle water? Especially if we've got these new ways of making food that need water. How do we make sure that water goes back into the system? It doesn't get wasted at the end of the process. And actually, we're seeing a lot of that. Actually, a lot of investments which are starting to explore as we invent these new systems that create some kind of waste, how is that waste going straight into another system or another company so that we've got this, we're sort of designing the circular economy as we go. So I, it's one of the things I'm very excited about, that the, that the companies are all talking out loud to each other. They're saying, hey, I've got this waste. What would you do with it? <laughs> you know, and, you know, and there's always an answer, you know, so uh, it's pretty exciting. So, but thanks for sharing uh, all of those uh, super valuable insights. Uh, on the opposite side, like what are, and you don't need to name uh, any any companies, but what are the maybe the, the the sectors or like pitches that you saw that for you makes no sense and in fact uh, look more like uh, you know greenwashing or waste of time and resource? Uh, do you have like one or two examples that you don't believe in at at the what the one that I haven't got to conviction on yet is vertical farming um it's um i see the logic of it but i see a lot of companies all doing a similar the similar sort of thing um it always ends up in a kind of shipping container um with kind of led lighting and automation in there and then making leafy greens or something like that and there's definitely a purpose for that but we haven't seen the breakthrough, which is the sort of true replacement um, of something that happens in broad acre. So I'm, I'm, but I'm always looking, you know, I'm sort of keen to see that. And I suspect that as our energy systems improve, because one of the big problems for these, 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 these companies is they use a lot of energy to actually heat the, the heat and light the, the crops. Um, as as we as we build out our renewable energy systems um, and we bring these worlds together, uh, these are these are going to improve. Um, the the where we tend to get to a no is is on 
the size of the business and the size of the impact. Um, sometimes things are quite subscale and it can be a problem in agriculture where the problem that you're trying to solve is very specific and therefore quite small and hard to sort of then sort of scale to the rest of the world. So I gave the example earlier that, you know, many of the early sort of digital data systems for agriculture were, um, you know, operating on a single crop in a single part of the world. And the whole thing just kind of changed when you moved it to another part of the world. So it was, it was absolutely not a Silicon Valley style, you know, build a simple app and then just sort of advertise the heck out of it and everyone around the world uses it and you get to scale. And so but I think that comes back again a little bit to one of the things we do differently in the fund, which is we help inventors to actually see and unearth what could be a much bigger version of their business. Um, one of the things that inventors tend to do is, you know, if they've invented a widget, they'll create a company called Widget Co. And that company makes the widgets rather than saying, well, what does that what does that widget actually do? And what are other things like that? And what could this be the first product in a broader suite of value that we sell to a certain kind of customer? And we do a lot of that kind of work. And there's nearly always a bigger, bigger version of the company in there. Last question for uh, for the uh, on the front uh, on my side, and I see time is uh, is running already. But uh, how strict and are you in terms of like measuring uh, impact in terms of uh, you know potential impact in terms of uh, CO two or greenhouse gas emission uh, that could be removed or avoid uh, or maybe eventually social impact? I mean, um, to base your you know to 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 decide and invest in this company like how strict are you and how do you calculate that uh, is that something really is the main driver at the early stage for you guys or still something that will be adjusted in the in the future hopefully no it's it's i would say we um i mean we have friends in venture capital who have very inspiring uh designs which are for example, where the, the carry for the investment team is at risk if certain emissions targets aren't hit by their portfolio over time, which I, I'm inspired by. And I expect we will explore things like that in the future for our fund. We've chosen to be um, not, um, um, not so extreme that uh, we, you know, we won't move unless this is very clear target we we want to know generally what 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 can be your impact how big could it be we do actually ask each company before we invest to actually say what their impact metric is and you know it's usually an some emissions change or uh, of some kind um and we um and we hold them to that and we you know we start we, we've started doing that much much earlier in the process even before we invest you know when we're doing the final due diligence and we're just about to get going with them, it's like we agree what that number is. And even if the number kind of nothing changes for years, right, you know, it's um, uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction. Well, of course, if you're in the lab for the next four years, it's like nothing. It's, a, it's still, it's important to sort of track it every single, every single board meeting and make it a thing. Um, 
and um and you know some of our companies it's just the it's the it's the absolute driving metric many of them are uh, uh set up b corps straight away so that they they sort of bake that into the operations of their their business and um um and so yeah this yeah not it's it's not hardcore but it's it's we do we do have a number of we do track it and um and it's important to us last question on my side it's more a personal question uh as i mentioned before like what's your personal view on the on the climate crisis as i always ask are we doomed uh what would you say to people who feel in a way demoralized by all the you know terrible news and already visible consequences of uh, of climate change I think we're going to fix it. Um, I think the conversation I'm trying to have is when you look at the world from my perspective, like if we, if we, you and I sat here now and started walking through the various horror stories that are in the news that come up all the time and say that problem there, what's the solution to that? I bet you, you and I could say, here's five companies going up to that one. Here's 10 companies going up to that one. Here's some science that's happening at University X or Y that's solving that. And um, and so the challenge is, uh, and where we need hope and conviction, is in execution um, and scale. And I do think there are some big, um, uh, um let's say operational issues to solve. So for example, here's another thing in my world at the moment. Um, we have a number of companies that are, you know, taking the coal out of coal fired power stations that are create, you know, removing diesel from, you know, renewable energy grids that are you know, making these new food companies. Now, all of them, they need to spend billions of dollars between them on infrastructure. Otherwise, there's no impact on the planet, right? It's a science experiment. And who pays for those, right? There's a, there's a, there's a job. We need to rebuild the system that builds the, all these companies. We need to build the climate infrastructure on a massive scale. And, and I'm seeing, but I'm seeing people doing that as well, right? It's early, but it's happening. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic. Question mark is how many years will it take? Yeah, still at that's this what moment, I'm telling you. We have a time <laughs> clock. <laughs> He's ticking. Still at this moment, I'm optimistic that the penny is starting to drop. We're starting to have the right conversations. It's all starting to turn. Um, and, you know, I think things like COVID, as horrible as they were, have been, a, a, you know, an eye-opener for people and has sort of started to drive new conversations. And, but I think that's the hard thing. The, the hard thing is not the technology to solve it. The hard thing is the social conversation and driving the whole thing to impact. Mm -hmm. But we can do it. Definitely. And uh, I think anyway, being on the optimist side is the, the best way to, to keep moving than, uh, you know, stopping and just, uh, you know, complaining about everything. It won't change anything. So what's next exactly. for uh, Main Sequence Venture and how can the community of uh, investors, LPs, founders, experts listening to the show can, uh, can help you guys? Well, we're just, uh, we're just about to um, do our first close of our third fund. Uh, which we're really excited about. So things are getting bigger and better. So we obviously would love to hear from people that want to invest in our fund. We love meeting 
co-investors um, from all over the world who are interested in the same kind of impact from science that we're interested in. Um, we have lots of strong relationships with investors around the world who just want help with the science, right? And that's, yeah, that's what sort of qualifies the relationship with us. And there's some good um, uh, good things to be done together there. And then finally, just, just founders and science teams from universities. I mean, let's talk. I just, I want to speak to everybody. I want to speak to everybody early. Um, and um, I think the worst thing people can do with us is, you know, wait until it's a sort of perfectly formed pitch. It's like, just let's start spitballing the idea and how we're going to make it massive. They're the conversations we want to have. Fantastic. That's exciting. I'm sure we're going to collaborate in the, in the future, Phil. Um, any question I should have asked? I did not for this uh, first part of the interview. No, <laughs> you asked all the great questions. It was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much Phil, for your time and your uh, incredible insight on the on the industry. I'm so excited to see uh, you know brilliant people like you uh, moving the ball towards a, a cleaner and better world. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And you keep it up. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbasecamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.